Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. It is uh, an honor for me today to actually hew closely to the theme of the, uh, the, the program generally, which is exploring sort of the nexus between myth, reality, and 21st century archaeology. And but what I mean by that is we are going to look into the world of archaeological fiction writing and how archaeology and fiction produce a very interesting interface that, uh, if nothing else, produces a tremendous amount of intrigue about archaeology and establishes a certain type of relevant relevance and fascination to our field that often gets clouded, I, I'd say, by uh, a lot of the scientific information, which is very typically and very often presented in a very formal sort of dry sense. It's interesting, important, and certainly has a tremendous amount to do with increasing the knowledge base and, and uh, providing um, an enhancement of what we know about ourselves. But the flip side of that is that archaeology is interesting. It's intriguing. Indiana Jones was a, a very successful character in movies and fiction and in literature. And there's a reason for that, because what we do is, is, is very compelling. And there are archaeologists who have ventured into the realm of fiction writing, creative writing, and trying to bring archaeology to life in a very, very vivid sense and one that would appeal to the broader mass of people who are interested in this but are not quite imbued with, with, with the curiosity or with, with the intrigue of the uh, formal aspects of it and, and the day-to-day um, thoroughness of archaeology and what it means as a science. So uh, we are going to actually interview two folks who are very well known in the field of archaeological fiction writing. Uh, Kathleen O'Neill Gear and W. Michael Gear are well established for their novels on North American prehistory, a series that they have undertaken which melds the latest archaeological findings with sweeping dramatic narratives and strong Native American tradition. The North American Forgotten Past series educates readers about the continent's more than 15,000 years of prehistory and brings to life its natural and cultural heritage. Beginning with a work called The People of the Wolf, published in July of 1990, and continuing through to The Broken Land, which is an upcoming volume, I guess, which has just been released in 2012, the series provides a vital understanding of the history of North America in a way that is entertaining, full of cultural detail, and intelligent. With over 16 million copies of their books in print worldwide, wow, that's a fantastic number, their books have been translated into 21 different languages. As archaeologists and novelists, they have made appearances on CNN, 
National Public Radio, and they have been featured on Green Room on PBS as well as local network features. I am very happy and honored to present uh, Kathleen O'Neill Gear and W. Michael Gear. Thank you so much for appearing on the program. It's a pleasure to be with you, Joe. I am thrilled to have you. I would like to start by really the main question. What got you interested in trying to explore the interface between archaeological practice and archaeological fiction writing? Uh, Kathleen, if you could get us started with that, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, you, One of the things, Joe, is when you're out on an archaeological excavation and you're actually um, excavating stone tools in one corner of a room, and you've got um, you know, grinding stones in another corner. You're seeing the people in your mind who are there, and you're hearing the conversations you know, as you're working in the excavation unit. And it's actually a short step to go from imagining them in that room to trying to write down what they might have been saying to each other. And also it, it helps you as an archaeologist when you're out there in the field to try to imagine what they might have been saying to each other and doing in that room. So how did you get the inspiration for doing that? It's just because uh, you, you, you got that feeling in a square or at a certain point you said, my goodness, let's try to transmit this experience in the form of, of constructed people and, and events, historic events. And in your case, uh, you're documenting uh, later North American prehistory. Run us through that, if you would, okay. Michael, if you would. Sure. The, the way that, that that really worked out for us is, is both of us were, were prodigious readers, as, as children anyway, and I think that as a result you, you suck up the, the form of the novel and it just becomes almost intuitive to apply it to what you do as a, as a professional archaeologist. And Joe, I really think, you know, talking to, to archaeologists over the years and you, you sit around over a beer and say, hey, you know, what do you think? Why did you get into this? And I, I think that it's because what we do as archaeologists, most of us, is when you're working on a site exposing that living floor like Kathy was talking about, I mean, that's what you're doing in your head. And when we were in the, the, the early 80s, when we first attempted to do this, uh, one of the biggest problems that we really had was the absolute lack of, of understanding of North American prehistory among the general public. You know, how many years ago was it that the SAA did the, the survey of, of Americans, and they found out that more Americans are familiar with Angkor Wat in Cambodia than Cahokia mm -hmm. in our own country. Wow. That's true. And so, but, but I mean, not most archaeologists don't make this bridge. They don't make the connection. Yes, they know about prehistory, and obviously the more you get educated, the more you understand it. And, and I think you run the risk of getting so imbued with the science of it all that you sort of lose the contact and the communicative potential to reach the general public and, and to transmit this mission. Yet, yet you folks have done this very well. Walk us through that. How did you, Kathleen, how did you get the inspiration? Did, did, did it happen when you got together? Did you do this individually? Did you do this during graduate school? When did this all start? Well, it all started uh, in 1981 when Mike and I met at a Wyoming Association of Professional Archaeologists meeting in Laramie. And on our first date, I, I was working as a federal archaeologist, and Mike said to me, well, what do you plan to do when you leave the federal government, which I had no intention of doing at the time, so I thought it was an odd question. And I said, well... Who did you work for, the BLM or...? Yeah, Bureau of Land Management, right. 
And mm-hmm. I said, well, you know, if I ever leave the federal government, I want to write a novel. And Mike said, really? And I said, oh, yes. And I said, but, you know, it takes me a year to write an 80-page archaeological report, so it's probably going to take me 10 years to write a novel. And right. Mike, Mike said, no, it won't. It'll take you two and a half weeks. And I said, two and a half weeks? <laughs> he said, yes, because I've done it. And I said, uh-huh. Well, I'd really like to see this novel that you wrote in two and a half weeks. And, Joe, little did I know what I Poor was woman. asking. Poor woman. Foolish woman. Little did I know what I was <laughs> asking for, because on our next date, he brought me a stack of eight manuscripts that he had written. Some were science fiction, some were westerns, you know, different kinds of things. But after I read them, I said to him, I said, you know, you really need to work on your technique, but your characters are wonderful. You could actually do this for a living if you wanted to. And that's kind of how we, we started, you know, working together. And then we were also pushed kind of by the federal government. Uh, in 1984, the uh, federal government issued what was called Operating Order Number 1. And I don't know if, if you remember this. A lot of the archaeologists listening out there will. But what it, what it basically said was that archaeologists could no longer do surveys on public land unless they had a, quote, reason to believe that there were archaeological sites out there. Right, uh, right. I know, do remember that. Yeah, and Joe, I mean, that was very difficult because we were in the you know earliest stages of predictive modeling for where sites might be. And mm-hmm. what we were really finding is that the most important sites were not where you thought they were going to be at all. And so Mike and I said, the, the only reason that anyone can even propose this is that the American people aren't aware of why these sites are important. And that's kind of how we dove into writing fiction. Okay, so Mike, so you had these eight manuscripts that you presented Kathy with. Were they published or were they just attempts or did you just write them and then store them? How did that work? Yeah, let me kind of put that in in context because when you do archaeology in the North Plains, it used to be, you know, back before climate change really started causing oscillations that you had the period between about after the Thanksgiving blizzard and before the April melt was kind of downtime. Mm-hmm. And so I just packed up all of all of my my makeup work, you know, the the cataloging of artifacts and writing the reports and doing all those all the, the paperwork that that comes after a good field season. And I was down in the family cabin, and Joe, I read this western novel, and in the novel, our hero takes off from Texas with a herd of steers, which you know are altered males, and, right. Uh, yeah, in the epilogue of the book, he's up in the Gallatin Valley in Montana, and his steers were calving. So it was one of those moments where I threw the book across the room and thought, well, I could do better than that. Wow. And you know, by that time, you know, I'd done, you know, sent all the reports back to to the head office at, at Western Wyoming College in Rock Springs, and so I sat down with the typewriter, figuring I didn't have anything else better to do, and and I just fell in love with the process. And you just went ahead and did it. Now, did you get a publisher, or did you just sort of store it? The first one has never been published. If there's any justice in the universe, it never will be published, (laughs) because to tell you the truth, Joe, it's absolutely horrendously awful. I mean, it's got stilted dialogue, huge, gigantic sections of of didactic information, everything you ever wanted to know about about sheep-eater Shoshones is in there. Mm -hmm. The entire ethnography but it doesn't work as a novel. Right. So, uh, so how, how, 
how did you do your first book? It was uh, what, both of you feeding into each other, one promoting the ideas, the other one creating the personas. How did that work? Well, we, when we started, Joe, we had this brilliant notion that what we would do is I would write the chapters where the leading female characters were dominant, and Mike would do the chapters where the male characters were dominant. And Interesting. So we started, yeah, and so we started working and on... And not smart. We started working on People of the Wolves, and I had the lead, and so I opened it with what I thought was a stately tribal elder named Broken Branch, and I handed it over to Mike because we always rewrite each other's work before we move on to the next chapter. And he mm-hmm. wrote it, and he turned her into a kind of a folksy old crone, and I said, oh, my gosh, what did you do to my stately tribal elder? I didn't do it, Joe, honest <laughs> to God. What, what, what happened is, and I, we went right back to the original, and I read it back to her. This is, and I read it in the, the tone of voice of a folksy old crone, and her dialogue worked absolutely perfectly, which was one of those moments where you learn a great deal about characterization. But as a result, what we discovered is that we really needed to literally co-author every chapter together because it gave more depth to the characters. You know, I, despite what people think, women have a male side and men have a female side. Right, yeah. With both of us writing those characters and creating those characters, I think they're better characters. So so you developed certainly a certain type of dynamic. Now, walk us through the research that you do, the ability that you clearly have to integrate the archaeological record uh, with, say, the appropriate background, because if you're working in the plains, obviously there are some ethnographic traditions, there is some information on, uh, on linear systems and, and, and uh, social and behavioral organization that, that is evident from the archaeological record as well as from the ethnographic record. Do you go into that in great detail and structure characters around that information? Absolutely. Uh, what we do is, is when we have determined which particular subject, culture, time period that we're going to be, be working on, First thing is is the literature search, and that, that's gathering absolutely everything that, that we can find that's both published as well as the gray literature when we can get a hold of it. And from there, um, let, let's take a, a book we did called People the Lightning, which is based okay. on Wendover Pond in, in Florida. Uh, it's set about 8,000 years ago, and for those unfamiliar with it, what this is is it's an underwater cemetery just outside of Titusville, Florida, uh, it's got a neutral pH and an anaerobic environment, and so of the recovered um, skeletal material that we have right now, we have a, a total of 164 burials. 92 of them still had intact tissue from which we could get DNA. Uh, we know what they were wearing, the blankets that they were buried in, and when you're dealing with 8,000 years ago, I mean, where do you go for any kind of information on, on the religious social structure? We've got the burials themselves, where all the individuals are staked down underwater on their right sides, heads to the east, facing north, which gives you some kind of a, of a you know, clues about their understanding of the afterlife. But what do you do about concept of soul? And Kathy and I got into this absolutely knockdown, drag out argument about how many souls that, that these people were going to have, and we finally ended up using the modern uh, Calusa, who had a, had a belief that, that you had three souls. You know, that 
and did they in Wendover Pond 8,000 years ago have that? We can't tell. It's, it's gone. But what we ended up doing is having to go to ethnographic material so that, that we could you know, put the, the people and the characters in that religious framework. I see. So you're doing some very, very serious archaeological detective work. I mean, you're talking about a site which I know reasonably well that is well documented, but you obviously had, the, had the monograph been published at that point or not? There were a few uh, publications at that point, Joe, but not many. And I, I think in our bibliography we list five or six publications at that time. And that, yeah, everything that Van Doren had done, I mean, we, we pretty much. Um, you know, mind the entire field. It was so new. But the, the important thing for us to write the novel was their use of fabrics. I mean, the, the, the fact that they're, they're doing, you know, three-fiber threads, uh, ten, ten threads per centimeter, this was really important stuff at a period in time when most people thought that uh, yeah, everyone was wearing hides 8,000 years ago. And, and here we get not only the elaborate fabrics, but the fact that they're decorated, I mean, this was, was, was really big stuff. Right. And so you were uh, sort of extrapolating, and you had a lot of fundamental data that you could work with, and you were making it as close to the material cultural record as you could, and yet projecting onto that something that was realistic and obviously took uh, both of your imaginations to extend and we will come back and discuss this incredible pairing of, of, of two very creative individuals who are archaeologists and how they are able to transmit the archaeological record into a living and dynamic series of, of stories and uh, tales that really captivate uh, the general public. And we will talk about the significance of that after these words. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Professionals and families who are dealing with autism face challenges that can lead to many questions. Questions about how to understand, communicate, and support each other. Every week, Autism Today with host Dr. Patrick J. Rydell will focus on dealing with the diagnosis and the day-to-day challenges of autism spectrum disorders. Dr. Rydell will combine his 30 years of experience along with featured guests from the ASD field to provide their insights and answers to your questions. Listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Want to hear about what's going on in the world of fashion, beauty, gossip, and politics? Then you'll want to tune in every Wednesday to the Voice America Variety Channel. Face Forward with entrepreneur and beauty consultant Sarah McNamara is honest talk, great guests, and a cool vibe with a lot of fun. Sarah and her guy Friday Anthony will turn you on to what's hot and what's not. This is a radio show custom made for you. Tune in to Face Forward Wednesdays at 2 p.m. in the East, 11 a.m. in the West on Voice America Variety. 
Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. This is Joe Schuldenrein, uh, back with uh, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. And today we are interviewing a most unusual couple, the Gears, who have managed to launch a very successful career as archaeological fiction writers in addition to uh, doing somewhat of a day job, I I would say, um, doing archaeology and sort of bringing in all these aspects of archaeology and imagination into the writing domain. And 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 by that I mean writing for for a broader public than we archaeologists normally do. Now, when I was doing research for this program and, and in the course of my own archaeological training, I have found that there are, in fact, a number of archaeologists who have ventured into the broader sphere of public writing. And, and one of the more famous ones is the French Old World archaeologist, Francois Bord, who was actually uh, did science fiction writing for a long period of time. Of course, everybody knows about Agatha Christie and Max Mallow and the couple Agatha Christie, of course, being famous for those early 20th century novels of the Orient Express and, and, and the movies that emerged from that, and they had archaeological themes. And, of course, I think uh, nowadays one of the more famous and well-known individuals who has crossed into this domain is not an archaeologist himself, but certainly Tony Hillerman. Uh, from the American Southwest has, has brought in ethnographic and archaeological uh, topics and themes into this type of writing and, and, and clearly has met with, with great success. And I would like to ask you, Kathleen, how uh, you view, say, something like what Tony Hillerman has done and how either that, how, how that has affected you or, or impacted your kind of work or how you see his types of, of, of very, very popular types of forays into, into archaeology and mystery uh, in, in terms of what you guys are doing. You know, we love Tony Hillerman's books. I, I think we know more people... Joe, who've gotten into archaeology as a result of having been inspired and intrigued by Tony Hillerman than not. I mean, most archaeologists we know are Tony Hillerman fans. Um, And he certainly influenced our work. And what Tony does, and and I don't know if you know this, but his books are actually used in the Navajo school systems to teach Navajo children and to get them interested in their traditional heritage and value systems. Um, But he... What he did in his books is he allows modern readers 
to work through, you know, archaeological mysteries with modern-day police officers, you know, Lee Porn and Chi are his, his big characters. And mm-hmm. he, too, he makes that emotional connection with the modern living cultures, with the Navajo, for example, and with the archaeological sites and modern readers, which is a miraculous and wonderful thing. Yeah, I think Dance Hall of the Dead was, in its day and age, was considered absolutely required reading in every field camp and, and contract archaeological crew that I ever worked with. Right. Now, how, how have your, your work, obviously, and we had talked about it during the break, uh, Kathy, about the use of the oral tradition in, in more recent uh, archaeological integration for your, your works. Can you give us a little bit of information on how you incorporate the oral tradition and how you meld that with ethnographic information and the archaeological record to bring your characters to life? Yeah, Joe, one of the, the critical things that we have to do when we're writing books that are set later in time For example, we're writing a series of books on the Iroquois and the foundation of the Iroquois Confederacy about 1450 A.D. is you have to, you know, you use the archaeological information and then you use ethnographic analogy with the modern Iroquoian groups to fill in a lot of gaps in the archaeological record. But you also have to go to the oral history of the native peoples to read their stories of what happened with the peacemaker tale. And it's always fascinating to us because among the the five nations who were warring at the time, um, they each had slightly different stories about Dekanawita, the peacemaker, and his death. Let's let's remind uh, people that we are moving now from the southwest, where the Hillerman books are set, all the way to the northeast, where the Iroquois Confederacy was was based. And so we're talking about... uh, the northeastern United States, Vermont, New York, New England, places like that, so so people get some kind of a perspective. I'm sorry um, for that, but uh, you're talking about oral tradition. Where do you go to for oral, oral tradition in the northeast, and, and, and who do you contact? Well, you, you go to the ethnographic literature, but then you also um, work with the native peoples themselves, and some of the, the best resources are found. For example, the, the Iroquois Indian Museum, in uh, New York is one of the best living history programs. They have a, a, an expert there who's Mohawk um, who teaches, you know, about how they made their tools, who preserves the stories, as well as, you know, many other uh, locations and peoples. But if you work with them, there are a lot of stories, Joe, that were never recorded. Um, for mm-hmm. example, you know, people will say to you, well, you know, my grandfather had some wild stories about the peacemaker, and this is what they were. And a lot of those you can't use because they're proprietary information. Um, they belong to the people and the families um, who own those stories. But you can take spin-offs from those stories to add color to the characters and events to the things that happen in the stories. So we use the, uh, the earliest recorded versions of the stories um, to fill in a lot of the gaps, and then you use also bits and pieces of modern oral tradition to fill in those gaps. And we think it really helps bring the stories to life. So you're doing a lot of interviews with informants and, and the, uh, the children and the grandchildren of uh, individuals who clearly remember what life was like uh, back on the reservations and who carry that tradition with them, correct? Yeah, correct. and you have to do the historiography that goes along with that. Um, right. And- yeah, then you have to, to paw through the overlay that was left by the European recorders. I mean, 
obviously when you go to the, the Jesuit relations, what they're seeing is, is somewhat different than, for example, what Dutch traders are, are reporting. Right, right. And so you, you move along, and uh, obviously this data gathering uh, step of the process takes quite a bit of time. So do you travel around and, and say, okay, let's focus in on Iroquois Confederacy, and you spend some time in the New York area and upstate New York? I would imagine you contact the Seneca and Tonawanda peoples, and, and you, you just go around and interview them on the reservation. Is that how you, you do the work? Yes. Sometimes. Yeah. It depends on how close in time we're setting a novel, but yes, we do. Okay. Now, uh, I'm just curious as to how much time you devote in your busy careers to the actual writing. Are you doing this full-time now, or are you still doing archaeology in the strict sense? Uh, how, how is that working? Oh, uh, yeah, we still do archaeology <laughs> in the strict sense. Uh, Mike and I, you know, you get used to this this kind of a schedule, Joe, but Mike and I work about 16 hours a day. So we, uh, in the summertime, we do archaeology, and then for most of the winter, we raise buffalo because we have a buffalo ranch, and we do the riding in the winter time. Or any time we can pry right. it out of the schedule with a crowbar and a hydraulic jack. Okay, I can imagine that this is so. You guys are always involved in this. Never goes away. Yes, it never goes does. away. Now, in a broader sense, and and this is this is a question that I would pose to you because you guys obviously have your eye towards the broader public, and and I said this in the promotion to the to the program, and 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 it's unfortunate uh, as far as I'm concerned. But we as archaeologists are not often the best communicators and the best purveyors of our industry and of our field. You guys have clearly taken it to another level. How do we do that? And, and how do we expand archaeology into the communication field to the point where we can actually perpetuate our craft and uh, promote the performance of archaeology during a, a period when funds are drying up, when science is sort of in many ways under assault, and how do we do that? I mean, this is, it seems to me that what you're doing is one of the most important things we can do is to expand the message. How do you figure uh, a, an appropriate strategy is for spreading this word and, and for promoting this type of writing and communication? Joe, you're going to have to change the entire template for our, and paradigm for our, our education and training as, as archaeologists. And Agreed. Why did the, a, lot of, a lot of people, oh, like, like uh, Dr. Laura Scheiber at, at University of Indiana is, is an excellent one who's, who's doing this. Yeah, David Anderson at uh, Tennessee is, is another one. Uh, Meg Conkey out in California that are all beginning to train archaeologists not just to be excellent scientists and researchers and statisticians, but to also train them that, yes, you must communicate with the public. You can't do it in, in our technical language, which is commonly known as arc bark. What you have right. to do is, is, is begin to put this actually into the curricula for public speaking, for public communications, how to deal with the media. I mean, this, this is a big thing. Um, it, and getting over some of the, the old guard, you know, the old processual archaeologists who say, well, God, yes, but that's, that's selling out to the system. Well, Joe, the hard lesson that we're going to learn is that if you don't sell out to the system, if you don't begin to market archaeology to market the, the great and fun things about it, there's not going to be a, 
we won't be able to do this anymore. It'll be seen as frivolous and meaningless as resources dry up. Tell me, if you would, Kathleen, if you're seeing any progress in this direction, because it's been one of my pet peeves for a really long time. Uh, are we doing this? Are, are there ways to do it? I mean, obviously, not everybody has the type of skills that you bring to the, the table and, and that you can purvey uh, through a variety of different channels. How do we do this? How do we actually implement it when we have these old models that we have to break down in order to advance ourselves one of the, the things that, that we need to do, Joe, and that many people are doing now is, um, just, just as an example, um, Mike was talking about Laura Scheimer at Indiana University. She has her archaeology students write short stories. They take the archaeological information, they put it into context, and they write a short story that puts people around the artifacts so that they can see the events in their mind. And when you can see it happening in your mind, when you have a story then you can go out and you can talk to the general public and you can tell them, you know, this, this rare and treasured story about our American past. And, and also, Joe, there, there are um, a few universities now that are having media courses where they literally train you the kinds of questions you're going to be asked by the media and how to respond because archaeologists tend to stumble and get themselves in trouble. For example, if you're working on a site that has burials, you know, you need to be very careful and uh, work with the native peoples, as we all know. But um, they're training people how to answer questions from the media, and that is desperately necessary. Right. Especially we got a joke. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, we, we've, we've got a joke that, that we often tell, and that is that it takes a, an absolute minimum of eight years of an intensive education to create a, an archaeological professor who can make this stuff boring. And that the miracle is, is that they managed to to succeed with great regularity. <laughs> and that is, unfortunately, I think you've hit it right on the head. I mean, we we have managed, I think, in many cases, to make a fascinating topic remarkably boring, and and that is something that we sort of have to deprogram ourselves from doing. But along those lines, you guys are clearly trailblazers in this issue. Uh, and how has uh, what's been the response to your novels? Obviously, the response is great. Your circulation is wonderful. There's no question. But how how are the novels received by Native communities? Okay, let me um, do that as a two-part answer, Joe. Um, you know, part number one is I'm not so sure that we're trailblazers because you know Adolf Bandelier started this when when he did the wrote the Delight Makers back in in 1888 when that terrific. Yes, that's true. Yeah, I mean Gordon Willie. Our Gordon Willie, you know, one of our our, our great gods, as, as soon as he was was sort of formally retired, started doing archaeological novels. So mm-hmm. I think that there's a, a great tradition there, and so I'm really not sure that we're trailblazers. I think we're, we're just a different swing of the pendulum. Maybe for the the second point of, in of your question there, uh, the the native community about oh, maybe ten fifteen percent think that, that what we're doing is, is terrible and exploitative. And another 20% probably um, could care less. But the vast majority of them are absolutely delighted. And just as, as an example, they put us into Gallup, New Mexico, to do a signing for People of the Moon, which is a, a Chaco book about the, the decline and fall of Chaco. And they had two signings. First was, was booked at Walmart for three or four hours, and the second one was at the, the Walden Bookstore. 
and we thought, oh, my God, that second signing is, is going to be just trash because everybody who's going to want to buy a book is going to come in earlier and buy it at Walmart. Yeah, and it, it turned out that both of them were just absolutely extraordinary. How many books did we, we sell that night, Kathy? It was a, a bunch, and we were busy the entire time and just having uh, yeah, all of it was almost entirely native. And we were scared to death because the publisher had, had you know put Anasazi on the, the cover prominently. And, uh-huh. Rather than ancestral Puebloan. Yeah, which is one of those culturally correct terms for the Southwest. Sure. And what we found out was, you know, especially you know, one young Hopi woman came in and says, Oh, great, Anasazi, I love these people. And what you find out is that in Indian country, they're, they're happy to call them Anasazi, and it's only when you get the, you know, that, that small percentage who are, what would you call them, politically active, who insist on ancestral Puebloan. And a lot of the, the local people don't even know who ancestral Puebloan are. Right. I've seen the same thing, especially in the Southwest, that a lot of the terms that we use sort of every day is exactly what's being used over there. And, and the sort of the traditional uh, or, or more cultural terms really aren't that used all that often. That's true. Um, but what about the response that you get from the professional community? Yeah, it's uh, about 20% of the professional community think we have sold out, you know, that we're not uh, true scientists anymore because we write novels. But I would say that a good 50% um, are really in favor of trying to get the communication with the general public, to get them interested in the archaeology and the peoples who lived in the past. You know, and there's another 20% or so um, who really could care less. They're involved in their own projects and, and happy to be so. But, but ha- right. about half, Joe, I think, are, are seriously um, in favor of writing such novels. And this has been a big change over the years. You know, we used to be kind of like pariahs. <laughs> <laughs> right. I guess it was is it the, the SAA in, in Atlanta that at least I first noticed the change where I was, was complimenting someone who had done an absolutely excellent symposium on agency. And, yeah, she looked at me and kind of got glassy-eyed and said, oh, my God, you're him. And <laughs> I, I, so I promptly you know, began to panic because I wasn't sure if she'd been, like, reading, you know, the, the wanted posters at the post office or right. who know what. And she said, my God, you're the reason that I'm in, I'm in archaeology today. I read People of the Wolf as, as a, a 14-year-old and said, that's where I've got to go. Wow. And on that note, we're going to have to take another break, and we will continue our discussion with the fascinating gears uh, after these words. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. 
Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Michelle Kors Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Good afternoon. Uh, this is Joe Schildenrein, and we're back with our episode on archaeology and contemporary fiction writing and the interface between the science of archaeology and the imagination and the fictitious portrayal of uh, archaeological peoples and, and, and prehistoric and historic cultures through the eyes of, of two very prominent writers, fiction writers, who've been able to transmit the persona and create personas for a prehistoric and historic peoples uh, in ancient North America to a very, very extensive degree and successful degree, and have been very successful at doing that. And we're trying to examine how these reconstructions are integrated into into the archaeological record and how they're transmitted into for the greater public so that archaeology can leap out and be a much more vivid field than uh, than the traditional scientific approaches leads you to believe and i guess we've discussed the fact that a lot of attention has been paid to historic sites they received a tremendous amount of funding whereas prehistoric sites and, and in North America we are um, talking about sites that predate um, the conquest of the Americas around 1500 1492 traditionally the Columbus discovery of North America uh, and, and we're seeing this division between the interest of the historic versus the uh, relatively lack 
lack, more lackluster interest in prehistoric sites. Uh, Michael, why don't you tell us a little bit about that and, and, and why there's this type of a dichotomy? Well, it's one of the things that traveling around the country and doing the research that we do, Joe, has, has really begun to bother us. But if you go to the southwest, for example, you will see only one really well-reconstructed uh, Puebloan structure, and that, that's the Great Kiva at Aztec Ruins. And you know, even then, it's, it's still unfinished on the inside. You know, the floor is still bare dirt. They have the, the sounding drums and the fire pit, but other than that, it's, it's a dirt floor. You don't have the, the, the kinds of trappings and things that would have been in a prehistoric Great Kiva. If you go to the far northeast, you know, the best reconstruction you're going to see up there is St. Marie among the Huron in Ontario. And yeah, it's wonderful. You walk into the, to the longhouse and it, it's dazzling. But other than that, sure, you go to Connecticut, you're going to see, you know, Whaling Town at, at Mystic Seaport. Uh, mm-hmm. Williamsburg, yeah, every almost every single fort in the western United States is is reconstructed with a living history program. And when it comes to uh, our, our southeastern or even even Cahokia itself, there's nothing there. All you see are the ruins and the foundations. And a lot of this is is, is perpetrating and the the whole myth that. Our native peoples were, were somehow undeserving and savage, and it really just irritates me. And your explanation for this is? I, Joe, if I could answer that, I think the problem is an us-and-them framework. And what I mean is that if it's our history, if it's, a, if it's colonial Williamsburg, um, it is deserving of being reconstructed, and um, turned into a you know a semi sacred kind of a site for us, but if it is native prehistory, it's them, and therefore it is not worthy of the funding or the attention necessary. And and there's a there's another element to it too, and that is that archaeologists are absolutely terrified of getting things wrong. So that we were talking to someone a year ago who said that she was asked to do an artistic reconstruction, you know, just to paint um, a Pueblo that she had excavated, and she said no because she was sure she was going to get it wrong. And uh, we, we really need to get over that, I think. Yeah, I'd also so, like to, to add yeah, to that, that you know, if we would just get over the idea of being... Take, okay, St. Marie among the Huron. When they, they rebuilt the, the longhouse up there the first time, you know, they had excavated the entire surface. They put the posts right down in the post holes, and then they looked at the pictures that some of the, the early French priests had done and yeah. said, wow, you know, given our, our measurements of that, that means that this roof would be you know, like 20-some feet tall. You know, that, that's over two stories. Surely they didn't build a roof that was like over two stories on this you know, crummy little longhouse out here in the forest. So they built the roof more like what they thought it should be. Then they, they called some of the, the local um, Iroquois and, and, and Huron elders in, lit the fires in the longhouse for the first time in, in six or 700 years, and promptly smoked everyone out of the building. Right. So, so what they ended up doing was, you know, after being in that environment, after things started to deteriorate, they rebuilt it with the same kind of, of structure that, 
was depicted by the French priests with the, the 22-foot ceiling, and relit the fires, and by golly, everything worked wonderfully. You know, so, yeah, we're going to be wrong, but we're going to learn from the mistakes. And one of the things that, that I would, would leave you with as, as kind of a challenge and, and something to think about is, Joe, can you imagine the impact it would have on perceptions of North American archaeology if they, they rebuilt that 50-foot, that five-story tall building on the top of Monk's Mound at Cahokia? Yeah. Right. Raising up toward the sky. And the other thing to keep in mind is that one out of every five Americans today claims to have Native ancestry. That's 20% of our population who say, yeah, this is my heritage. So why on earth aren't we doing more about it? I agree. There seems to be... Well, I, I, going back to one of the points that that you made before, and, and I think this is this is an ongoing issue, is that the prehistoric does seem to be the other, and when you can't sort of demonstrate the continuity between the other and our obvious Euro-American ancestry, that becomes an issue sort of along the lines of uh, Rudyard Kipling's White Man's Burden, and uh, you just sort of uh, fall into that module and say, okay, we, we really don't know anything about this, we won't touch it, and anything that's familiar we, we, we want to deal with, despite the fact that at this point we do have some tools and we do have scientific understanding that enable us, enables us to do these reconstructions with a higher level of sophistication. But moving on to another issue here, you create these very, very dynamic prehistoric characters that, that sort of move across time and, and, and sort of lodge themselves in the imagination of the readers. I was looking at one of your books and I saw right away that these are pretty prominent. These are pretty prominent characters. How do you get the inspiration for that? People you know, projections, how do you work that? You know, it, it actually comes from the, uh, the archaeological information, Joe. And, and let me just give you an example. Um, when you're doing an excavation like at the Bighorn, I'm going to use a historic example, the Bighorn Battlefield in Montana, which was the last mm-hmm. stand of Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce, um, and you're excavating on the outer edges and you're finding uh, women and children face down, and you can tell from their, um, from their remains that they were probably shot in the back. In your mind, you see them running and you see the soldiers on horseback chasing them, and you see Mm -hmm. the the guns being fired, and you are immediately in the mindset of one of the the women running. And so long as you can create that emotional tie with those characters, they come alive. But it comes straight out of the archaeological information. So you actually have uh, the excavated information, you have the positioning of the bodies, and you're able to do that, and on that basis you're able to, to do a certain amount of projection, and, and, um, and you're able to, to actually create something that is both plausible, and then I guess you, you let your imagination go with you as well, correct? I mean, you, you have a message that you want to convey, and you, you, want, to, you want to promote that, and you, you try to tie that into the ethnographic, oral, and archaeological records, and, and you do that in a sense... And, and you're able to cast something. I think what what fascinates me about the success that you have is, is the following: Would you consider writing something about your methodology, how you do this? 
Like, sure. sure. No one's ever asked us to, but sure we would. But it just seems like such a wonderful idea because, again, I think what you're doing is the way that we are, that this profession is going to survive. I mean, obviously, you know, traditional funding sources, traditional uh, funding agencies, I mean, as, as the economy tanks, uh, those traditional outlets that are government sponsored seem to, go to to wane as well. And I think it would be instructive if, if you guys thought about even doing a college course on, on how to do archaeological writing for the public and how to create archaeological novels that are not totally fictitious but that are grounded in the science of excavation and in the science of ethnography and in the details of oral history, and I'm sure uh, that's something that would, would probably interest a large number of people and uh, um, possibly something that, that you guys clearly can do because you've been so successful at it. Yeah, and actually we, we kind of kicked around the idea about doing one of these workshops at the SAA. At, in Sacramento we did, we did a, a forum, a two-hour forum, that uh-huh. was very, you know, a lot better attended than we expected it to be, and so it's a possibility to to try a workshop and and see if the interest is there, and and if so, pick it up and run. We'd love to do that. Have you have you? I assume you've had uh, interactions in university campuses as well, correct? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one of the the only engagements we almost never turn down, Joe, is uh, if we're asked to talk to schools of any variety, you know, elementary, high school, university classrooms. Yes, we have. And how do you see the future? Are are people doing what you're doing? Are you seeing that the domains of archaeology are expanding to the point where public education has made some strides and that we're moving in the right direction ultimately? Or what's your prognosis for, for, for where we're going in this? Because I think it's critical. Not so much in, in public education. And periodically, we'll we'll get a teacher, and, and granted, it's a biased sample because they're reading our stuff anyway, saying, "Oh yes, I've I've added this to my class." But just the the public in general, uh, as far as they're concerned, and as far as most education curriculums are concerned, it's it's just a matter of no, this is this is not important. It doesn't teach to the test. And, and you're getting that response. Well. Yeah, uh, and it's, well, you know, we we think that American education needs a a major (laughs) rethinking all the way through. But we have seen, as I think we've mentioned a couple of times on the the show today, that a lot of the professional community has has started to come around as, you know, part of the whole post-processional change in in theory and emphasis. Yeah, Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Kathy. I think the the archaeological community understands that if we are to survive and flourish and the science to uh, get the information out there, that we have to do a better job of communicating to the public. So I I think it's getting better. Yeah, and I think that the final filter on all this is, I remember in graduate school hearing all the justifications for archaeology that, well, it's a laboratory for human behavior in the past and it, it shows us you know diachronic a- a- adaptations to changing environments and all these wonderful things to justify our existence and Joe I think they missed the point and that is that as we've been able to prove the public 
will pay to hear the story. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to bring this program to a close. I want to thank you so much for uh, giving us your very unique window on archaeology, and I hope that the future is a little bit brighter thanks to the contribution that the Gears have made. Until next time, this is Joe Schildenrein for Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Looking forward to seeing you again. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.